In your Bible this morning, uh, we would direct your attention, first of all, to a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18. We'll be reading from verses 21 through 35. If you're using your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1134. Uh, The text for our sermon this morning will be taken from Ephesians, uh, chapter 4, verse 32. You can find that on page 1346. Uh, We continue as a congregation in our morning services to make our way through the book of Ephesians, uh, section by section. Uh, We'll be considering one verse this morning, but for a bit of uh, insight from a parallel passage of Scripture, we want to read from Matthew 18, uh, verse 21 through 35. So here now together the reading of the Word of God. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. We then turn to the words of our text for this morning, taken from Ephesians 4, verse 32, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we said recently in a sermon on Ephesians that the church, the church is a community of sinful saints or of saintly sinners. We have this dual identity As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saints, we are the holy ones, having been justified, as we'll consider this evening, and also having been sanctified, 
We are holy. And yet, because we are not yet glorified, we are also still sinful. And that sinfulness finds expression in our daily interactions one with another. And so we sin not only against our God, but we also sin against one another. The question is then, how are we to respond to that reality? How are we to respond when we are sinned against? This is a common experience in the life of the church. That's why the Apostle Paul, already back in the days of the New Testament era, has to address this as he writes to the Ephesians, and he gives inspired instruction on how to respond when you find yourself sinned against. And we want to consider that this morning underneath this theme, a life of kindness. Noticing, first of all, the audience for a life of kindness, and then secondly, the action in a life of kindness, and then thirdly, the analogy in a life of kindness. Your God, my God, calls us to live a certain way, not in order to become His people. Remember, in Ephesians, as in all of Paul's epistles, the theological indicatives come first. What God has done in Christ comes first. The redemptive work of God is accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. But because that redemptive work is accomplished by Jesus Christ and is applied unto our hearts, therefore we ought to live a certain way. As the reality of redemptive grace impacts our heart, there ought to be the expressions of the virtue of kindness. And we want to look at the audience for that life of kindness, the action in a life of kindness, and then thirdly, the analogy in a life of kindness. First of all, the audience for a life of kindness. And we want to narrow this down because I think most people would say that kindness should be something that is expressed by every single person in the world. A common virtue, you might say. But the Apostle Paul is not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. And so we narrow our focus down and we understand that this audience is an audience of saints. And just for uh, perhaps review or reminder, if you glance back to Ephesians 2 verse 4, you notice here the, the basis for the church's existence is bound up in the mercy of our God. Something we always do well to remember that our identity as Christians, our identity as a Christian church is not because of anything that we have done. It's not of anything that we in and of ourselves are, but rather it's bound up in the very character of God's grace and of His mercy. So Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy who is overflowing in mercy, who is superabundant in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us. And I ask you this morning, when you think of God in His very essential existence, do you think of a God who is rich in mercy or compassion or pity 
Do you think of a God who is great in His love, of His selfless, sacrificial service to those whom are the objects of His favor? Uh, You can just glance at other verses here. You can look down at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so this mercy and this love channel themselves down through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, through His atoning blood, through His sacrificial blood. Uh, You can continue and look at verse 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in which you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. And so there is this corporate identity of the church. Uh, There are many members of the church, but all members have their existence on the same ground. The grace and the mercy of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. And in our minds, when we think about that fellow member who is in front of us or behind us or to the left of us or to the right of us or in a fellow neighboring congregation or in a fellow neighboring uh, state or nation. We must train our minds to think this way. They are in the church on the exact same basis as we are. They also have received the expression of the kindness of God, of His mercy and of His grace. They also have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God so looked upon that person from all of eternity as an object of His favor for an undeserved reason, but God set His favor upon that person and has called them to be a saint, a fellow saint. Notice in our text, verse 32, be kind to one another. We live in a radically individualistic age. We live in which individuals are consumed with themselves. But that's nothing new as well. The Apostle Paul spoke of this of the love of self, but in an antithetical sort of stream of thought, the Scriptures come and continually emphasize this corporate identity of the saints, of the church, one another. That's the audience for this kindness. You know, you could say, well, it'd be awfully easy to be kind if I could just live in isolation. And you could even maybe say, well, I I can be kind with a certain few select people. If I could just pick or choose a handful of individuals in whom to interact, well, then I could probably muster up some kindness. But that's not the idea for the Christian church. God doesn't say to you, you know, go pick a handful of your favorite people and just isolate yourself in some little cell of a community, and and there in that tiny little group of like-mindedness, exercise kindness. No, as the church, be kind to one another. As an organic body of believers, well, all of our differences, 
with all of our uniqueness, with all of our positives and negatives, be kind one to another. Are you aware, am I aware, that God is greatly concerned with how we interact one with another? So often I think of the opening chapters of Revelation where Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, says that he walks in the midst of the candlestick, in the midst of his church. Now, of course, not physically, but spiritually, Christ is in the presence of his church evaluating the interaction. So think of it that way. Christ is listening as we speak to one another, as we speak about one another. Christ is watching as we greet one another or as we don't greet one another. And he's reflecting upon it all because he's greatly concerned with how individuals get along in the organic body of his church. And that congregation is the audience for this life of kindness. Fellow saints who by God's providence and by God's grace have been placed together within a congregation. Well, what does this actually look like? Now that brings us into our second point. The action in a life of kindness includes a certain attitude and includes a certain duty. Uh, the attitude could be summarized with the word that is used there, kind or kindness, and be kind to one another. Now, this begins with a hard attitude, not just with the expressions of words. That'll come later, but with a hard attitude. And what exactly kindness is, is a certain compassionate heart, a certain tender-heartedness towards one another a soft-hearted disposition that is an expression, an expression of love. And so we remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is kind. Now, now kind and kindness is one of these words that we just kind of banter around, and, and sometimes we discredit the weight of this virtue. You know, we, we, we think, well, Everyone should be kind, and, and so we don't really emphasize it that much, perhaps, in uh, our interaction as a church. But genuine Christian love has this characteristic, it is kind. And then it goes on, of course, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you want to know what kindness looks like in concrete action? There it is. Kindness doesn't inflate oneself, but rather has an eye towards the other individual. A kindness doesn't just speak about oneself, but rather takes interest in the other individual. Kindness doesn't rejoice over negative reports, but rejoices over positive reports. But this kindness is not a natural disposition of our hearts. 
Because by nature, as our Heidelberg Catechism tells us, by nature we are prone to hate God and to hate our neighbor. And hatred and kindness are polar opposites. So what needs to happen and what does happen is that when redemption is applied within our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit changes gradually underneath the means of grace the very disposition of our heart. So this is not just simply an exhortation to some type of moralistic fruit stapling. You know, just go smile a little bit more at your neighbor and wave more at your neighbor and speak niceties to your neighbor. We're first talking about a very heart attitude that must be continually transformed by the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit applying the grace of God to our very hearts. And we emphasize this because of what Galatians 5 verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. The fruit of the Spirit, that is the, the effect of the Holy Spirit's indwelling and operating upon my soul, is that I will then express genuine attitudes of kindness in a gradually increasing manner within the community of believers as well. Because sometimes it's almost easier to be kind to the stranger in the community or the casual acquaintance that you may meet at Fairway or Hy-Vee who you only have to interact with maybe five minutes a week. And you can maybe muster up an expression of kindness to that individual. And then as soon as you're done exchanging pleasantries, you can say to yourself, well, I don't need to see him or her for another week. But to live with one another as a congregation, well, that perhaps is a different order. And to cooperate one with another in the unity of the Spirit well, that's a whole nother matter. And to engage in that type of unity that is pleasing unto the Lord demands this attitude of a soft-heartedness one towards another. And so I would ask you, as I ask myself to reflect, are, are we known to some extent for our kindness? Think if you were to ask the person in the pew in front of you or the person in the pew behind you or the person who sits on the other side of the sanctuary every Sunday, if you were able to poll them and say, would you characterize me as a kind person, what would their answer be? What if we were to poll our community we as Covenant Reformed Church, if we were to ask them, are we known for our kindness? And I know it's a bit of speculation, but what would the answer be? And do we value being known as a kind congregation? Now, this is not being soft on orthodoxy. This is not letting everything go. No, this is holding to biblical orthodoxy, holding to the infallibility of Scripture. 
but with a disposition that's not harsh, but kind, compassionate, tender-hearted. I leave the question for our reflection, and we move on then to the action of a certain duty, because at, at some point this is all in the abstract. But the Apostle Paul doesn't leave it in the abstract. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And we might be able to swallow this pill rather easily if he would have laid down his inspired pen there, but he goes on forgiving one another. You want to know what kindness looks like? The action of forgiveness. And so if we're not able to forgive one another, we really shouldn't pretend that we're kind. Oh, sure, we may smile. We may say niceties. But if we harbor bitter enmity that is unable or unwilling to overlook and to express forgiveness, then we really shouldn't deceive ourselves and pretend that we are kind. Because kindness evidences itself with forgiveness. I want to look at other cross-reference from the gospel according to Luke, uh, Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. Because you notice in our text that this forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, and we'll get to that in our third point, the analogy, uh, but I just want to hint at this already in Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. And there the apostle recounts this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And just notice there the emphasis upon the duty of forgiveness, but also a certain qualifier uh, that this forgiveness is transacted with the affirmation, the verbal affirmation of forgiveness uh, upon the individual coming in repentance. And based upon this Scripture passage, which doesn't take anything away from the Matthew 18 passage, but sheds further light into the Matthew 18 passage, we make a distinction between having a heart attitude that, that is eager to forgive, that is willing to forgive, that, that doesn't harbor bitterness, that doesn't harbor enmity, that doesn't bear a grudge. But at times, in God's providence, an individual doesn't have the opportunity to actually say to the individual who has sinned against them, I forgive you. And there may be a variety of reasons in which an individual is not actually granted the opportunity to say, I forgive you. But I want to first of all look at that, what I'm going to call provisional forgiveness. It's the heart attitude of a pity and a compassion towards the person who has sinned against me. Rather than taking an angry approach, rather than taking a harsh approach, rather than lashing out with vindictive vengeance, our hard attitude ought to be something of compassion for the person who has fallen into sin, even if that sin is directed against us. And why should we take this posture? Because it is the posture that our God takes towards us. And I understand this goes against our nature. Our nature is to build up walls of defense and to say, I will never, ever get over this. But that's not the posture that the Scriptures call us to take. 
That's not a soft-hearted, tender spirit. And now sometimes we take the position of Peter when it comes to the actual transaction of forgiveness. We might say, seven times, and that's it. I think Peter thought quite a bit of his answer. I think Peter thought quite a bit of himself when he gave his answer. Lord, seven times? Is that going above and beyond? And Jesus says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. If my math is right, 490. But even that's a figure of speech. It's not like we begin with our counter at one and say, when you get to 490, I'm done. The compassionate heart has this posture, an eagerness to forgive. Over and over and over. I want to qualify that. Forgiveness oftentimes does bring about a reconciliation, but not always. Sometimes the brokenness that comes with the result of sin eliminates the possibility for a full reconciliation. For example, in the the case of abuse or something of that nature. But generally speaking, we don't set limits. We don't set limits on forgiveness. But now I imagine that there's a heart or two saying even as my own does sometimes, why in the world should we have this attitude? And that brings us into our third point, the analogy and a life of kindness. If you go back to the words of our text, there are two words translated there in the English that ought to really impact our attitude and our actions, and they're those two words, even as. Even as God in Christ forgave you. I want to read you three texts that shed light on this even as. Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Not because our action of forgiving our fellow man is meritorious to earn the forgiveness but rather because a persistent refusal to forgive our fellow man shows that we have never really experienced the redemptive grace of God. Seen in the light of the parable that Jesus gave of the man who had been forgiven much but then went out and laid his hands on his neighbor's throat and said, pay me what you owe. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luke 6 verse 35 and 36, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, 
and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He that is the Most High, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful." In the parable that Jesus gave, the servant owed an enormous amount of money to the master. And that servant's fellow servant owed him a few dollars. And you'll notice, if you go back and read there, the servant who owed an enormous amount to the master said the exact same words in his plea as what the servant who owed just a couple dollars. And the master said to the servant, I forgive you everything. But that servant went out and said to his fellow servant, I will not forgive. I will not And why? Because he he never really appreciated the reality of what he had been forgiven. He refused to give his fellow servant the few offenses because he had never really grasped the extent of the mercy of God and the grace of the God that had been shown unto him. And I assure you that when by the Word and by the Spirit, when we begin to get just a glimpse of what we have been forgiven, it will transform our attitude and our actions towards one another. When when we think that in the presence of the holy God of heaven and of earth, I have infinitely sinned, And I have never, ever kept one of His commandments, but yet He freely, because of His grace and mercy, has completely forgiven me all of that. And then I think of somebody who gossiped about me once. Somebody who mistreated me once. Or even twice, or even a hundred times. Do you see the disparity between those two accounts? By nature, I have rebelled against God, violating every one of His commandments. But He is a God who is characterized by mercy and grace, and He completely forgave me. And I, then, going to go out and lord it over my fellow servant and say, I will never I will never forgive you. Well, in love I say that is the height of arrogance. And that is the height of pride. I want to quote as we begin to draw to a close from Alistair Begg. Many of you, some of you, listen to his Truth For Life radio program or podcast. He writes as follows, Refusal to forgive reveals we have minimized our offense against God and we have maximized a brother's offense against us. And that's the truth of the matter. 
refusal to forgive reveals or shows or makes very, very plain and evident that we minimize our offense against God. We think, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. While maximizing a brother's offense against us. And at the end of the day, each one of us ought to take this text to heart and examine our own attitude and our own actions. Because the Word of God is clear. It really is clear. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, how great your infinite grace and mercy are that you would forgive us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to know the wonder of that transaction more and more, may it have a practical impact in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our lives that we would be those who are quick and eager to forgive those who sin against us. And we pray, Lord, that we might not throw up excuses in front of this text, that we may not try to dodge this text uh, by pleading ignorance or coming up with sorts of defenses, but that your word would bury itself deep into our hearts, transforming us, changing us evermore into the likeness of our Master, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.